Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. We are going to start this episode off with a friendly reminder that we are currently accepting submissions for our next Grim Encounters episode. That's right. Do you have a creepy or strange experience that you'd like to share with us? Send it over to thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com and we may just read it on the show. I love hearing everyone's stories. We've had people send in stories of possessions, UFO encounters, hauntings, all sorts of stuff. It's like getting together around a little campfire and sharing stories together and I absolutely love it. Oh, same. It's, yeah, exactly that. Just campfire ghost stories a lot of the times. And my favorite ones are the ones where it's like, does anyone know what the heck happened here? And it's kind of a mystery. Right? Oh, I just love them. So yeah, if you have an experience you want to share, we would love to read it. So send it over. Speaking of creepy, today's story is bound to send shivers down your spine. I actually didn't know about this one until Charlotte shared it with me, and it is just horrifying. Today, we are going to be covering the story of Dennis Depew. Not only is Dennis known for murdering his own wife, his story was shared on the show Unsolved Mysteries due to the fact that he wasn't caught for almost an entire year. And if that isn't bad enough, some of the stuff he got up to during that time inspired the opening scene to 2001 film Jeepers Creepers. I dare you to play the song Jeepers Creepers while looking at a picture of Dennis Depew. Like, I know it's not okay to make fun of someone for their appearance, but he was a shit human being, so I don't care. This is by far the creepiest looking motherfucker we have ever covered. He is horrifying. Yeah, he is unfortunate looking to say the least. And we've covered, I feel like, quite a few shitty parents and especially shitty husbands lately. And this guy is definitely the latest on the list. But by the end of the episode, you'll see how his actions inspired the opening to that gruesome horror movie. Normally, we start our stories at the beginning with the upbringing of our subjects, but today, we're going to do things a little differently. We are starting at the moment Dennis Depew was discovered. And if this sounds familiar, this is the part that's the inspiration for the intro to Jeepers Creepers. We are taking it back to Easter Sunday of 1990. Ray and Marie Thornton were out for a drive in the countryside of Coldwater, Michigan, This was something the couple did every weekend for some alone time and a little bit of peace. This time, things would be very different. Is that not the most wholesome thing you've ever heard in your life? (laughs) Right, it sounds like such a cute time. I love it. Oh, and oftentimes during these drives, they would play a little game together where they would come up with names or funny phrases based on the license plates they saw, which is Cody and I do shit like this too. It's like we come up with music, games, and all sorts of stuff to pass the time when we're having to like road trip to his parents and stuff. So it's so wholesome. I think that's what makes some of this so scary is this is such a relatable experience. Oh, absolutely. They were driving down Snow Perry Road when an old brown Chevy van sped up behind them and began to tailgate them. The aggressive driver made the couple nervous, but eventually he sped past them and drove off. They read his plate, GZ3877, or GZ, which Marie exclaimed, geez, he's in a hurry, and the two shared a laugh and went on with their drive. They drove a few more kilometers. They were familiar with the area and were surprised when they saw the same van parked by an old abandoned schoolhouse. 
Ray slowed the car down a bit so that they could get a better look at what he was doing. The man appeared to be holding a large bloody sheet. He had parked the van between the school and a large oil tank that was on its side. They saw enough to know that they didn't want anything to do with the situation, so they sped off. They were horrified when they saw the van behind them a few kilometers later. Once again, the driver sped aggressively towards them and began to tailgate their vehicle. Obviously, at this point, they're pretty terrified, so they begin to make note of the van as well as the driver. Eventually, the van turned down a side road. They saw him stop at an intersection. The Thorntons at this point are like, holy shit, what the hell just happened? Not only did this guy almost force them off the road on two separate occasions, he was also holding what looked like a sheet covered in blood behind an abandoned school. That's about as sus as it gets, but it's about to get so much worse. Right? This next part actually really surprised me. So they had a sudden burst of courage and they were like, you know what? We need to report this guy. Let's go back to where he stopped so we can get a better look at him. And oh my God, I don't know that I would be that brave to go back. I can't say that this would be my first choice, but I guess I applaud their bravery. So they drove back to where they last saw the van and it was indeed still there The driver had gotten out and was crouched over behind it. They drove past him again and saw that he was in the process of switching out his license plate. So like I said, it gets more and more suspicious the further we get into this story. (laughs) He had left the passenger side door of the van wide open to reveal that it was absolutely soaked in blood. So they drove off and reported him, right? No, they decided they needed more proof. They figured that the best course of action now would be to go back to the abandoned schoolhouse and find this bloody sheet. I'm not surprised that this inspired the intro to a friggin' horror movie. This is classic each time they're like tiptoeing a little closer to peril kind of thing. Right? They arrived at the schoolhouse and Marie led Ray over to where she saw the man dump the sheet. They stumbled upon a hole in the ground that an animal had made and looked in it. There, they found a sheet covered in blood. This was when they were finally like, okay, this is bad, we need to leave, and they took off. And they were right, because earlier that day, that man had been responsible for the violent death of his wife. And that man was Dennis Depew. Dennis was born on July 13, 1943, in Sturgis, Michigan, to Claude Dale and Elma Merle. I want to share something kind of odd. Uh, I found his obituary. Oh, interesting. The site that the obituary is on, it gives you the option to sign up and do a DNA test to see if you're related to him. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Like, I feel like, would you really want to know? I don't know. I mean, there's going to be folks out there with a morbid curiosity, for sure. I don't know that I would want to know. I've already got some pretty shady relatives out there. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm good with keeping that sort of thing as far away from me as possible. Right. Oh, my goodness. Also, it makes absolutely no mention of the fact that he once had a wife, let alone the fact that he killed her. Oh, I feel like that's important information that a person should know before they get a DNA test, you know? In 1971, he married a woman named Marilyn, and together they had three kids, Jennifer, Julie, and Scott. 
On the outside, they had a good life and the family was happy and well taken care of. However, as the story often goes, Dennis was not exactly a loving husband and father. He was prone to bursts of anger and was often paranoid and irritable. As time went on, he became more and more withdrawn. He spent the majority of his time at work or alone. Due to this, the Depew family was filled with tension, and his relationship with his children began to steadily decline. They saw how controlling he was of their mother and would often avoid him. Rather than deal with what caused his children to be so afraid of him, he just accused Marilyn of going behind his back and making them hate him. Kids notice things, guys. Like, even if they're young, they start to pick up on stuff. Things got even worse from there. Dennis became incredibly controlling and wanted to be the one who made all of the decisions for the kids and Marilyn. Marilyn wanted to be in charge of her own life, and she wanted to set a better example for her children. After 18 years of marriage, she filed for divorce. During the divorce proceedings, Dennis seemed to be more than reasonable. They had no issues agreeing to custody of the children. At one point, his lawyer actually had to sit him down and encourage him to stand up for himself more because it didn't really seem like he cared whether or not he got a fair share of his property. This surprises me because he was so controlling during the marriage and then once it fell apart, he's suddenly super chill. I don't buy it. I feel like he wanted to lull them into a false sense of security. I definitely get that vibe for sure. Overall, everything seemed fine, and the divorce was finalized in December of 1989. They agreed that he would get bi-weekly visitation. However, even that was too much for the kids, and they often skipped out on visits with their dad. Eventually, his weird and controlling side took over, and he began showing up to the house unannounced. And this is where it gets real scary for me. Right? Not only would he gain access into the house multiple times, Marilyn had changed the locks after every single time this happened and he still kept breaking in. She just would come home and he would just be sitting on the couch like everything was normal. I'm gonna say it again, this motherfucker is terrifying. Awful. During this time, Dennis also went to a co-worker of his named Jan Murkowski and told them he was contemplating taking his own life. If someone says something like that to you, take it seriously. Absolutely. And if you're really worried enough that it sort of stays with you, please tell someone. Absolutely. (laughs) Sadly, they did not tell anyone. And this brings us to Easter Sunday, 1990. Dennis arrived at the house to pick up his children for their scheduled visit. His youngest daughter, Julie, absolutely refused to go with her dad. She demanded to stay home. The other two children saw this and took their sister's side. This absolutely enraged Dennis, and he began to lash out at Marilyn. Once again, he accused her of turning the kids against him. The argument soon became physical. Dennis grabbed Marilyn and pushed her down the stairs. She fell all the way to the bottom. Dennis saw what he did to his wife, and she was clearly injured. His reaction was to run down the stairs to her and continue to beat her as his children begged him to stop. Jennifer, the oldest daughter, ran to the neighbor's house so they could call the police. During that time, Dennis had dragged Marilyn all the way back up the stairs. He told his kids that he was going to take her to the hospital. They would never make it there. That would be the same day that Dennis had his encounter with Roy and Marie Thornton. 
An official search for the couple would begin a few days later. Ray and Marie had contacted law enforcement and reported their encounter with the creepy man with the van. When police investigated the area, they found fresh tire marks that matched Dennis's van. When they looked more, they found a pool of blood that they matched to Marilyn. The following day, a highway worker discovered the body of Marilyn Depew. She was found halfway between their home and the schoolhouse. She had been shot once in the back of the head. Dennis was very obviously suspected of killing her. However, he was nowhere to be found. $4,000 had been taken from the family home. It was clear that he had gone on the run. A warrant was issued for the arrest of Dennis Depew. He was charged with murder, a felony firearm charge, as well as attempting to escape police. Once he was charged, the FBI was called in to take over the case. On April 17th, Dennis wrote 17 totally unhinged letters to some of his family and friends. To his co-worker Jan, he wrote, Marilyn had many, many opportunities to treat me fairly during this divorce, but she chose to string me out, trick me, lie to me. And when you lose your wife, your children, and home, there's not much left. I was too old to start over. Can I just say, if I received a letter like this from a co-worker... And from what I understood, they weren't incredibly close. Dennis wasn't particularly close to people, it doesn't seem like. And then you just get this letter and you're like, um, what the fuck did I have to do with any of this? (laughs) Right, especially if it's just like some weird dude at work. I would be incredibly creeped out. But this is the part of the episode where we all need to take a moment to collectively rage because this pisses me off so much what he said here because his own lawyer said he didn't fight for anything during the proceedings. I swear he did it on purpose so she would feel secure for a small period of time before he went all crazy on her again. I genuinely believe that once he realized that, like, whoa, she is actually serious, she wants a divorce, I think he snapped. I would bet money that that was when he started planning her death. Yeah, definitely. And that's what's so messed up here is he's saying he's too old to start over and so he's just going to kill his wife? Right? Because then she's dead. Like, she doesn't get to start over. And as we'll see... Yes, he does. (laughs) It's messed up how much he reminds me of John List. Very, very close. I made that comparison too. Absolutely. Because these guys are really all quite similar at the end of the day. And that's that's fucked up. (laughs) Well, that's how, uh, you know, your forensic analysis, your behavioral uh, analysis are able to predict these people because they tend to act in very, very solid patterns each time. And it's really fascinating how consistent it can be, too. Yes, absolutely. Another of his letters went to Anne Dunkel, a coworker of Marilyn's. She saw the letter and read the first little bit and then immediately turned it over to the police. From the small part that she had read, it seemed like he was trying to blame her friends for what had happened to her. He also wrote a letter to Marilyn's parents, Betty and Dallas. Three months after he sent these letters out, he mailed copies of a 13-page letter to friends and family. In it, he basically tries to rationalize killing his wife. And don't, of course, forget, just like John List, the random nonsensical biblical shit sprinkled throughout. Here's a snippet of that letter. I realize that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but sometimes the Lord is too busy doing other things. 
Genuine question, is that a Bible quote? I don't think so. That sounds like, you know what? No, I'm going to censor myself here. (laughs) That sounds to be like a Facebook post that a single middle-aged man would make. Very much so. Dennis remained missing. It had appeared for all intents and purposes that he had vanished without a trace. The episode of Unsolved Mysteries that would feature the story of Dennis DePew aired in early 1991. That night, a woman who had been asked to be referred to as Mary arrived home from work. Her boyfriend, quote-unquote Hank Queen, was already home. She thought it was strange that Hank had parked his vehicle in the driveway rather than the garage. And what kind of vehicle did Hank Queen drive, may you ask? A big brown Chevy van. Because if you hadn't guessed, Hank Queen is actually our pal Dennis DePew. As far as fake names go, I'm not super digging Hank Queen. Yeah, no. Look at that face and tell me you see a Hank Queen. I don't know if the timing is right, but maybe he was inspired by King of the Hill. Because it's like Hank Hill, King of the Hill, Hank Queen. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch. Hank Hill and Steve McQueen. And he got Hank Queen. It wouldn't surprise me if that was his (laughs) uh, rationale there. Absolutely. When Mary entered her house, Hank appeared to be very worried. He told her that he needed to leave town because his mother was sick and there was no one to take care of her. This wasn't the first time Hank Queen had acted super sus. In the past, Mary had gone as far as to hire a private investigator to get more information on her mysterious boyfriend. The PI found absolutely nothing. And guys, chances are if you have to hire a PI to spy on your significant other, perhaps rethink the entire relationship altogether. Honestly, I don't know if we have any listeners that watch 90 Day Fiance. I hope we do, because I need someone to talk to about this show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there, uh, There's a guy on the show right now who had to, he wanted to hire a PI, so he did, because he didn't trust his girlfriend. And that's exactly what I'm thinking. Like, if it's come that far, you, I don't think you can go back from that. No, I don't think so either. Not without some serious therapy and recommitment to your relationship. After everything came out about Hank Queen, though, I hope she went and got her money back because this doesn't seem like a very good P.I. No, not at all. Considering who he actually was, she followed him into their room and he was feverishly packing random clothes and personal items, all while asking that she go prepare food for him because he would be gone for a while. Once he was done packing, he made his way out the door. Before leaving, he kissed her on the cheek. She said goodbye to him and gave him a big hug. As she watched him pull out of the driveway, she couldn't help but feel like she would never see Hank Queen ever again. That night, she sat down in front of the TV and was shocked to see that Hank had been featured on the show. And that his name was actually Dennis DePew. This has happened... Multiple times now in cases that we've covered on the show. I love to see it. I really do. I really do. It's great when it happens. I, you know, the justice part, absolutely. I just, can you imagine you're sitting there after a long day? Your boyfriend just ran off on you. So you're sitting down to watch some true crime. Yeah, especially when you're already like kind of sus of him anyway. (laughs) Right. And then everything you were worried about is true. And then some. 
I can't imagine how your heart would just drop. Like, it would be absolutely batshit insane, but it must happen all the time. Apparently it does. Later, when she would look back at that night, she would say that it seemed like he had probably seen the segment about him and that he was asking her to make him food because he was going on the run and he didn't want her to see anything about him on the TV before he had left. A friend of hers also saw the episode and called the police, and she also gave them his license plate number. Four hours later, Louisiana state troopers saw his van and attempted to pull him over as he drove towards the Mississippi state line. Troopers were given permission to shoot the front tire of the van if he didn't stop. At 4 a.m., Dennis flew through a roadblock set up by Mississippi troopers. When he did this, he also tried to force two deputies' vehicles off the road. They tried to shoot out his front tire but missed and instead hit the rear tires. He drove for about half a kilometer with his two rear wheels blown out. Eventually, the van couldn't go any further and he finally came to a stop. Dennis pulled a gun out from the seat next to him and began to shoot at the police. He fired twice through his own windshield and once through an open window. An officer approached his van. Dennis once again aimed the gun, this time at himself, taking his own life. Dennis DePew is buried at Eagle Cemetery in LaGrange County, Indiana, far, far, far away from his wife, Marilyn, whose resting place is in Michigan. And I'm very glad for that. Right. I hate to see it when someone is killed by their spouse and then they end up buried next to them. Like, that is so insulting. That should never happen at all. Absolutely not. You don't get to stay next to the person that you harmed like that. What was the case that we covered with... Oh, the Lawson family, where they all ended up buried together. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, hell no. You don't get to stay with your family after that heinous shit. No, daddy doesn't get to be buried with the rest of the family if he took him out. It doesn't work that way. No, you should be cremated and chucked into the ocean is what you should be. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that is the story of Dennis DePew, a real piece of crap. And actually, he was the first wanted fugitive featured on Unsolved Mysteries who took his own life. Fun fact, or not so fun fact, as it turns out. I hate this guy. I think he should have spent the rest of his life old, cold, and uncomfortable in jail. I hope the kids were able to heal from all of this. I hope so, too. I believe they went to family members after all of this because they essentially lost both parents within a very short period of time, which is, of course, hella traumatic. So, yeah, I I hope they got the help that they needed. Oh, my God. Me, too, because that's that's friggin terrible. There really isn't much information about them online. Actually, there's essentially none, and that is completely valid. We don't need to know what happened to them. Again, I hope they're happy in complete privacy. Yep, I wish them well. Mm-hmm. All right, friends, uh, we got a couple things to talk about here. Uh, first and foremost, Edmonton Pals, and those of you who want to come to Edmonton, save the date, December the 9th, our very first live show. Yes, and if you're hearing this for the first time, this is not the first time we've announced it. We did announce it on Extra Credit back on Wednesday, so I guess not to be like a snob, but those who know, know. But yeah, December 9th, our first live show. 
It'll be held at Felice Cafe here in Edmonton, the wonderful Felice Cafe. They've asked us to come, yeah, do a live show. I'm so excited. Oh my goodness. Frick, I I get nervous and both like hella excited every time we talk about it or plan something. We've got some really cool details coming up and we will share them with you as soon as possible. And listen, we have one hell of a show that we're planning for you guys. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, we're thinking kind of like a hybrid between like our regular show and our extra credit show. But you guys will just have to wait and see and tune in. Yeah. And of course, we couldn't forget to thank our wonderful Grim VIPs on Patreon and up. Thank you so much to the wonderful Bob, Lisa, Pink Flamingo 20, Atlantean Jedi, Brian, Hillary, Judy, Kevin, and Mayhem Mudkip. You're the bomb.com. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. All right, Charlotte. So today I want to share with you something called postpartum psychosis. Oh, good. You know, I love anything to do with babies and pregnancy. (laughs) I know you do. So this can happen overnight and it only happens in around 0.1 to 0.2% of deliveries. But this horrifying illness manifests within two weeks of motherhood. And that means that the mother might feel the desire to kill her newborn as soon as they wake up from the delivery. I'm sure there's been a few horror movies made about that particular topic. I'm sure there has. Bye. Bye.